And we've seen uh, in so many industries, like the main use case of blockchain is to destroy the party in the middle. Mm -hmm. So the party like saying, hey, if you stream, then you get this amount of money. When you have, when you're able to just like cancel that layer and just have some code there that says, if a person streams, send this amount of money. And there's no need to like factor in how much percentage you have to take out of that to pay your employees in order to maintain the system. That's extremely interesting to me. Woo! Brian Lee. That was... Brian Lee. I'm so glad we got to bring him on the podcast, as you'll hear. We start out kind of like hearing his story. You know, how do you go from a person who loves piano into playing uh, and programming the keyboard for The Lion King, for Broadway shows? And how do you go from there to Le Rev and then give it all up? It's such a beautiful story, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But what I loved most was how we switched to cryptocurrency and blockchain. And I think that every musician, especially musical entrepreneurs, need to listen to the end of this conversation, especially because the next few millionaires and infrastructural upheavals of music and the music industry are going to come from blockchain. And uh, we kind of give some use cases and possibilities as to how you can get involved. We spill uh, all of our secrets and give you great business ideas. uh, But (laughs) in decentralized blockchain fashion, uh, you can't steal it because now we all know it. It's on every node. (laughs) And you are our nodes. Thank you, nodes. Thanks for listening, nodes. Faking nodes podcast. (laughs) There he is. Bro. Faking nodes podcast. Let's go. But then it would be invalid because that's, you can't fake nodes in the blockchain. It destroys the chain. (laughs) I love this conversation with Brian. He's awesome. Walks us through his whole journey. It's fascinating. He was really following his interest and taking other doors. And that's really led him to where he is today, sitting in his office, thinking about blockchain, writing about the future. I can't wait to see where he goes. I'm thankful for the knowledge he's given us. We might have a business going. This is my favorite friend I've ever made on the internet. And he's a member of the Faking Fam, listens to all the episodes. Our next guest, Brian Lee. So just for our listeners, this is probably our longest distance podcast. Where are you now? I'm in my office in Tokyo. Just a few minutes from my house. It's a few minutes from us, too. Yeah. (laughs) I I had to rent this space because having an almost two-year-old run around the house does not allow for productive work to take place. It's crazy, man. What do you mean? When when stuff, he lights stuff on fire, like what? Just keep working, bro. Well, he almost did light something on fire, actually. (laughs) Word? So. Talk about um, it. What did he do? No, he was just walking around with a lighter. I don't know where he got it. <laughs> As you do. That's why they call it the terrible twos. Because the thing is, like, we Crime. don't have any use for a lighter, so I was actually unaware that we had one in the house in the first place. <laughs> and he just... It might have been, like, one of our friends brought it over and forgot it or something. I don't know. They were lighting candles at one point. I didn't know it was still in my house, so I was just walking around with it, and he's, like, throwing it at the Christmas tree. <laughs> like, what... What could go wrong, right? You know, just, Merry Christmas. He's trying to recreate the burning bush. Yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, when the tree starts talking to you. Right. Yeah. 
But Only with the DMT. Remember, oh, yeah, the, yeah. you got to take the DMT first. <laughs> like, wait, is this tree? Maybe that. Maybe the. Yeah, maybe it wasn't um, a deity speaking through the tree. Maybe it was just a podcast. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Like and subscribe. <laughs> Let my people go. Okay, this is like my favorite intro of all time. <laughs> Welcome to the Faking Notes podcast. Yes, we're here with my friend Brian Lee. He's all the way as you as we said as you said before uh, in Japan. You're a frequent listener of the podcast, and honestly, like what I I love so much about you and our relationship is that it started on the internet. Uh, we started hanging out and just exchanging ideas. Yep. And you were the first person to introduce me to so many different ideas like cryptocurrency, the possibility of putting my own music out on the internet. The first time I was sampling Japanese culture, you were there by my side. So like you've been around so many wonderful, pivotal moments yeah. in my life. And I wanted to share you with my audience, man. But so like, can you tell the faking fam, like of which you're a part, what do you do? Where are you? And yeah. what do you think you'll be doing in 2021? It's pretty crazy to think that since we met on Grinder, oh. we're here on a podcast. <laughs> That's incorrect. Dot, just dot, for dot, dot. <laughs> Oh wait, no, it was Instagram. It was Instagram, not Grindr. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same thing. Same thing. <laughs> dot dot dot. Oh yeah. So those questions, who am I? I hate this question because I really I really have a difficult time answering this question just because I do so many things that it almost sometimes makes it seem like I have no idea what I'm doing because <laughs> no really because I think when we get it when someone asks you like oh what do you do like when you tell them oh I do music I do tech I do marketing they think like oh what you're you're just like a nobody yeah <laughs> so so that's like kind of what I do I have a music background uh so that started all the way back in so I was born in Hong Kong and uh, started music lessons, piano lessons when I was five, and then did all that through college. But I didn't go to a conservatory. I actually went to Northeastern for music. What was it? I don't even know anymore. This is like why uh, I don't take <laughs> college seriously. What, what, was my, what was my degree? Oh, music recording slash music technology. No, slash music business. There were so many slashes. It's like a music business and they have this, like a, well, if you take a few extra courses, then you also get music technology written on your piece of paper at the end. Oh, nice. So I did that. And I, I did that because I wanted an easy course load so I can actually focus on stuff outside of school. When I first started at Northeastern, I was actually doing pre-med. And um, after the first year, yeah. I was like sort of really unhappy because I no longer had any time for music and I really enjoyed it. But I also, I didn't want to commit to like a conservatory or something like that where I actually have to spend eight hours a day practicing or whatever. Yeah, so I did. So I tried to choose something related to music that would allow me to do gigs outside as well. So during my sophomore year or my junior year, and this is kind of a long-winded biography but, no, this is great uh, no tell it, us it, going. <laughs> it sort of explains how things came to be i had actually skipped school one day uh because <laughs> it was really cold outside and there was snow and i lived 15 minutes off campus so i was just like looking out the window there's like a foot of snow i'm not gonna walk to school today 
So, <laughs> so I skipped school that day, and then uh, I got to looking up because I was doing like a lot of not Broadway stuff, but like the same kind of shows, just locally, you know, with some schools and some community groups, Les Mis, mm-hmm. all those shows. So I was kind of interested in how keyboardists like set up their gear and like played on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So I was just searching online and came across this guy's site and he's a keyboard programmer on Broadway. And I just reached out to him and just asking him like, oh, what gear do you use? Cause I was really interested in building up my own rig uh, and doing things the right way. So I didn't really expect a response, but uh, he actually got back to me within like half an hour. Whoa, and whoa. yeah, we got to talking and then he was like, Oh, I, re- I actually recognize you. I like read your blog before and it helped me on something. Because I was writing a lot about Mainstage, which is the app that all of them use on Broadway and on these different shows. And he was like, oh, I, I actually read your blog and it helped me on something. And we got talking like back and forth and that led to a phone call. And then he actually offered me like an assistant gig. Mm. And so like that was just really... Just a random way of how I got into Broadway. You know, there there was no like eight years of hard work and I had to go bartending for five years and like stay up late. And no, it was just, I decided to skip school one day and I reached out to this guy. And partly because like this kind of area of the industry is not very competitive. So it's not like an actor or an actress where they legit have to go to so many calls and you know sing and dance and whatever the world of uh keyboard programming was quite different so it's a very small number of people maybe like five or six people do all the shows on broadway wow lessons here folks skip school i think it's the takeaway thank you for coming on brian (laughs) skip school (laughs) uh live somewhere where there's snow (laughs) that's the takeaway i wanted to really highlight that beautiful anecdote you shared about like writing the blog and like putting informational content that genuinely helps people out and what that act of doing something for free (laughs) really led to this really wonderful opportunity. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that blog? Like how did you know to get started? How did you choose your topics? Like what what was the the grind of that? Like I started experimenting with blogging in like eighth grade. Uh, So it was I think the first thing I used was like Live Journal. <laughs> like, oh, MySpace. I haven't even heard of that. Throwback, throwback. <laughs> I don't even know if it exists anymore. But yeah, I did like Live Journal and then I did like Tumblr for a while. Oh, yeah. And then I learned about WordPress. After that, I, you know, I launched my own WordPress site, blah, blah, blah. I think the, the inspiration in blogging just came from me being interested in so many like, not really archaic, but like specific things that Mm -hmm. there's not a lot on the internet about it. And, but at the same time, I know that I'm probably not the only person who's doing this. So, so just that idea of sharing my thoughts and um, there, there's nothing really like special to it. You know, when I first started, it was not because I wanted to make money or something like that. It was just really, I just wanted to document my thoughts, maybe look back at it in the future. So, yeah, it was very, not naive, but just (laughs) very plain. You know, there's no ulterior 
influence behind that. Interesting. So you just wanted to like get it out there and a vehicle of expression, but maybe like not even like that serious. You just like doing it. And it's funny now yeah, seeing just, so many yeah. blogs. Now it's a very planned method. Startup blog, release free content for one year. In one year, <laughs> run a trial of your course. In one year after that trial, <laughs> yeah, yeah. select groups. And one year after that, profit off of, you know, it's like such a method to the madness. But that's pretty early in the, like, I guess the blogosphere to if we're talking like 2008. Woo. Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah. I think like early adopter. back in 2008, it was just a lot of um, sharing my personal thoughts. I didn't start to like do a lot of music tech stuff until maybe 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that was when I was like first or second year of college. And that was when I guess he found my post. Wow. Yeah. So where did that take you from there? <clears throat> Cause I remember you're being so modest. You were playing yeah. for Broadway, but you were doing the Lion King. What other shows did you do? The Lion King was actually the first. So after <laughs> we got to talking and then he was basically, so this was a few days later after the snow day. And I was actually in school. Uh, I was about to go to class and he was like, oh, I'll send you a Dropbox in a bit. And then uh, when I was in, in class, I got like a ping, like a, not a ping, like a vibration noise in my pocket. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that, that must be the Dropbox. So I was like taking a look at it. <laughs> and then it just said TLK tour. And then I was like, what's TLK? <laughs> and then I was like, I can't go through this class. And I was like, oh, please, can I go to the bathroom? So <laughs> I went over to, to the bathroom and then I opened up the Dropbox and then eventually realized that TLK was the, was the Lion King Ooh. and that was the national tour. And I was like, oh my God, it's like, <laughs> I, I thought this was going to be some, you know, small time dinner show or something. Yeah, play at a nursing home. Like- <laughs> but no, it was, it was the Lion King. And then I was so excited. I called my mom. I was like, I made it. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> made what? Because I didn't tell her about all, all of this. And mm-hmm. uh, I explained that I was talking to this guy. And then he's like, he's offering me some work on The Lion King. And then she's just like, make sure it's not a scam. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that's, that's the correct yeah. response. Asian parents. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> was that how... a Persian prince? What? what? It, was, the, was the person hiring, hiring you a, a Persian <laughs> prince? There we know? go, yeah. A oh, Nigerian, yeah. Yeah, Nigerian, uh, Nigerian emperor. Uh, sultan. <laughs> yeah. That's my, one of my favorite Onion articles. It's like, Nigerian prince sad no one's responding to his emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it must, must suck for him. <laughs> so, like, just to make things short, I worked on that and... When you get your first gig like that, you try to do extremely well uh, just to make a good first impression. So we had a lot of work to do. So I ended up just like doing it all day, uh, skipping a few classes uh, and then doing it all night. And at one point he was like, I don't know how you're doing this so fast. And I was like, oh, I don't know either. (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe because I'm staying up all night. Uh, I just wanted, I felt like that was my entryway into the industry so i didn't want to disappoint and basically after that we ended up working together a lot also worked on aladdin beauty and the beast some more disney stuff and you know that allowed me also to build my name and then i got hired at a show in las vegas did some show in china 
What was the show in Las Vegas called? La Rev. Uh, it's at the it's at the Wynn Hotel. Yeah, that's when so, I was staying with you. That's when I we, yeah I went and did the Mount Charleston hike and yeah um, yeah. Good yeah. times, good times. I miss yes. You looked exhausted after that because <laughs> <laughs> I was vlogging the experience. Yeah, too. Right. Like, you were winded. I was preparing for. I was preparing for. Oh, you're talking about the uh, the hike. Yeah. yeah, dude, that was that, that was back when I didn't understand the carbs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That was when I was like, you know what, empanadas every night. Empanada yeah, mamas. Okay. Let's go. That's a food group. Yeah. I had a quick question. <laughs> Brian, sure. so like, why, it, it, like, what really drew you to Broadway? Was it through the instrument, and you just wanted to find like creative uses of like technology in the keyboard, or have you been like a, a musical theater fanatic, or, or was it just by chance? Like, what led you specifically to Broadway? Because that's a a more unique hmm. path than say like like an a, an actor. Like, okay, Broadway is a very logical thing, but not every musician will wind up uh, interacting or even considering Broadway. Why Broadway? To be blunt. I wasn't good enough to be a classical musician. <laughs> what do you mean? And no, it's just like, when I say not good enough, I mean both maybe skill-wise, although I was maybe not skill-wise at that point. I was pretty good. But I think just mindset-wise, I was not, I, like, I didn't want to spend my whole life practicing. Mm-hmm. So join the club. Back in high school, I was very serious about the piano. Uh, I was actually practicing a long, long time, but I only like to practice when I want to practice, not because I have to. So that's always kind of the problem, I guess. And and I just had so many different focuses that I also didn't want to, I don't know if limit my future is the right term, but, you know, I wanted to leave it open, you know, not mm-hmm. get stuck into um, a routine where I just have the music classes all day and that kind of life. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that kind of appealed to me was was Broadway. Uh, and first, when I started, I actually wanted to be a Broadway musician uh, because I think it was a good a good mixture of both really good skills and also like a very diverse set of music. So uh, I might not get bored. So I, I, I don't know if you guys like sat in a Broadway pit or something, but some of these shows are extremely hard to play, I would say, like just as difficult to play as a concerto or something. Like shows like Miss Saigon or something. Oh my god, those those keyboard parts are insane. When you start getting into like Sondheim territory, like those are like notorious bonkers. And it's one of those things like everyone loves listening to Sondheim or whatever. Yeah, but playing it's a whole different beast. That's that's a beast, and also just it's not like a traditional orchestra setting where it's just you know you start and then you play and then you end. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of I guess fun where something on stage might stop moving and you just have to (laughs) improvise, you know, randomly and like that kind of stuff is fun. But that was my mindset about why I, why I ended up doing more of those Broadway style shows. But when I got more into it, I actually realized that I was more interested in the technology aspect rather than playing. And Mm -hmm. even the, the playing is so competitive and just requires so much networking, which I don't know. I just hate networking for the sake of getting a job. <laughs> yeah. I prefer like actually how about we be friends? But mm-hmm. a lot of people in the entertainment space, you know, I just from my experience, I don't think they actually want to be friends with you. There's certainly those like gems out there who are actually they want to be friends with you. But 
a lot of the people that I've met, especially after I started to find success, they just want to extract something from you. Uh, they want you to like propel them to their next gig or whatever like that. And I think the technology side of the industry is less like that, just because it's less competitive. It seems like there was like a big shift, and a lot of the uh, older generation uh, speaks to it specifically about back in the day. Your dream job was to be a session musician. Yeah, it's awesome. It pays well. You get on albums, royalties, and something I, I've heard from them who still own music studios, who are still session musicians. But something shifted. All these session musicians and like your most skilled people wound up on Broadway because it started to pay better. And yeah. before, while they were like, look down, oh, you're playing the same show. It's uh, who cares? Like, I want to get on this album. And now getting on Broadway is such a desired thing because of consistency of pay, how popular it is. It seems to be like a sweet gig. Got in there at the right time. But I hear you on the difficulty because I know some wind players and others who have a different experience where it is that wait in line, you're playing off Broadway, and then maybe in four or five years, someone kindly lets you sub in and you, you have to fit into their dynamic and all sorts of stuff like that. So like, congrats to you to uh, jumping straight into Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that at some point I still wanted to do the playing part, but I didn't want to go through all of the entire process of how people get there so i was actually able to do some of the technology stuff and that kind of got me network with some people and then after that actually that led to me playing on on a show which is very different from how it usually happens so i think there's mm -hmm. also there's also something to be said about implanting yourself through a different route and then you know getting back on that road, but you take a huge shortcut. Because what I, I loved about the way, you, the way you synthesized it is that you found that, okay, I'm not necessarily the player that could necessarily, that would fill this niche, fill, uh, fulfill something for this niche, which is Broadway, yeah. right? But what is really interesting is you understood that, okay, another way I can give value to the Broadway industry is through my music technology know-how. And bringing that to the table, and through that way, I I don't even want to characterize it as a um, as a shortcut. You just took a different door. There's 15 people trying to fit through that one door, and you just took one that yeah, right. Nobody else was looking. That's at. true. Yeah, yeah I so guess it can beautiful. be a shortcut or not, depending which side you're on. You know, if, <laughs> that's true. If someone has been trying at it for years and years, and then they just see this person, it's like, what shortcut did they take? Did they sleep with someone? I don't know. Did you? Did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so put, put it down nope. the record. Did you sleep with the king of the lions? Is, is that what you did? You sleep with the king of the lions? Mufasa? Mufasa. <laughs> We've spoken to actually like a number of our guests, like as you know, how they've gotten to where they are by either switching industries or taking different paths. It might be through... Let's not call it that shortcut, but that other door. With yeah. Johan Linux coming in here, classical background, wants to get a pop. What does he do? He knows how to do sheet music. He knows how to write for strings. He knows how to arrange for strings. Mm -hmm. He knows good string players. What a great way to kind of bypass. It was still a ton of work. It still is a ton of work. But to bypass sitting in there, plunking away at synths, trying to learn from that standard ground up. He's got a valuable asset, and he was able to leverage himself and get into the door. 
and you did the same. I know they encourage a lot of film composers. People want to get in there. They're like, learn Pro Tools really good because no one wants yeah. to do this or learn this other thing really well uh, because either people don't know how to do it or they just don't want to do it. And so if you can come right. in and add add that value, uh, it, it can allow you an opportunity to poke in uh, and help yourself out in a new business. Speaking of other doors, what, what door <laughs> did you take like, after being in this Broadway sphere for a while? One of the main reasons was just Broadway is like this really insane mix of like really high highs and really low lows, just as I think with any top tier entertainment sector where, you know, there's so much glamorous, you know, things that you see on, on the outside, but on the inside, sometimes it's not the same thing. So one of the main reasons I left was just, I felt the industry was very toxic and that's almost by design because it's just so competitive that many people, especially actors and actresses, but to a certain extent, also the musicians where you asked me, like, what can I do to improve to get a gig on Broadway? It comes to the point where I actually have to say there's nothing you can do to improve. It's just a problem where uh, there's too much supply. Uh, there's not enough demand. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. And some things come down to just like practical uh, stats where, you know, there's only 10 spaces where we can have shows. So in those 10 spaces, we only need 10 actors uh, or actresses or band members or whatever. So there's mm -hmm. like the built in limit there, but so many people want to, you know, be famous on Broadway, blah, 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 <laughs> that a lot of them just get their dreams broken. And I saw so many of my actor and actress friends, uh, some of my musician friends as well, you know, they've been working at it for eight, 10 years, never got their break. And that's a long part of your life, you know, mm. eight or 10 years, it's working every day at it. And what do you have to show at the end, right? You have, uh, you know, a lot of them are working at, Starbucks, which is not a problem, but it's not what they want to do. Being around all of that was kind of a little depressing. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know if it, was kind of, if it was kind of a cop out, but I decided to leave. And I guess the second reason was that the state of keyboard programming on Broadway was getting very boring for me. Uh, mm -hmm. When it comes to how the industry uses technology, uh, it's very conservative, especially for all of these Disney shows uh, and even non-Disney shows, even shows like Hamilton or didn't Hamilton get bought by Disney or something? I don't know. Yeah, it's on Disney Plus. <laughs> it's at least, yeah, at least yeah, the, 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 the I, I don't know if they yeah. bought it, but they have license right. to show Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. But even like those shows, the level of technology and like creative usage of the technology was just like not really appealing to me like i wanted to be on the cutting edge of things like how can we use all of this to its full extent to create this like out of the world experience and it always got boiled down to you know let's just layer like strings and bassoons together and <laughs> let's just have the keyboardist play right you're the, you're the bassoonist here yeah. let's just layer the <laughs> viola and the bassoon <laughs> that's crazy and all of the disney shows are like that most of the keyboard players just augmenting the orchestral sound with like strings brass uh winds and percussion there was no 
sort of like, how can we use this software to do some really cool stuff? And at some point, it just got boring because I was just copy pasting stuff, which it paid really well, but it was boring. And I decided to leave. Uh, I got offered a show in China. It was like this Cirque du Soleil style show. Mm -hmm. Uh, So lots of cool technology going all all over the place. And did you guys want me to like talk about that? Or yeah, bro, I want to hear because I didn't hear about this. I'm ready for the journey. Uh, Yeah. So this was. This was a show in China. Uh, it was a show by a company called Dragon, uh, mm-hmm. founded by Franco Dragon, which I believe he's one of the original founders of Cirque du Soleil. Might have to do a fact check on that, but <laughs> I think I heard that. Jamie, somewhere. Jamie, yeah. what, can you look Jamie, yeah, produ- yeah, Jamie, producers, take care of it. <laughs> Where, where's Jamie? Man, he's um, not showing up to work today. <laughs> oh yeah, Jamie got COVID. Sorry. <laughs> he did. He did for real. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> RIP. So yeah. Uh, so this was kind of a new experience for me. This this show in China because it was very contrasty to Broadway because Broadway is always trying to downsize, downsize. Like let's find the cheapest gear that we can use to barely get things done, mm-hmm. and that <laughs> that was always the case. Like here's ten grand to do like two rigs. And they have to be redundant as well. So, you know, oh, yeah. That's just not possible. <laughs> Rig them perfectly twice in a yeah. row. Right. Yeah. And yeah. on this other show in China, you know, these large, I don't know what kind of show you would call them, like circus style kind of large arena thing. It's very unlike Broadway, where like this, this kind of show, they take everything to the max, just like the sound. Um, the lighting, like they were doing like laser mapping in order to find 3D space in order to like project the lights in the right place and make all these kinds of like cool effects. And I can send you some pictures. I think that will, um, that will help you out. Yeah. So, and the, and the other thing was that like this show was like, here, just like make a list and we'll buy like just make a list of what you need and and we'll buy it. <laughs> so, uh we got our like dream equipment and the funniest part of this show was that it was like out in the jungle in China just like at this park. I think it was close to Thailand maybe, and but it was like out in the jungle and things took forever <laughs> to ship there. Uh mm-hmm. so we actually were there for 3 months. We didn't get any of our equipment until like 2 months in. Oh my god. So what did you do the whole time? So for the first two months, like so they put all of us up in this like five star resort oh, with jungle man. views and so we were legitimately just like drinking wine and <laughs> getting massages, going to the spa. Uh but like meanwhile the the lighting equipment was there and like the other sound equipment was there. And it was kind of this like weird anxiety slash relaxing kind of thing because we see all of the other people go to work every day and we're just here like whatever uh going on trips we went on a cruise (laughs) and and it's like wait it's like at some point we're gonna have to make up all this ground like these uh, these like lights people and they all have two months of work like before we can even start so it was really relaxing but also like can we actually get this done is that realistic at all um and 
eventually stuff started to show up like our keyboards, our interfaces and all of that stuff. And it was so weird because like here and in the States, we're used to UPS and these companies, right? In this like jungle part of China, it was just like some random guy showed up on a bike and he had a bag with our, with, with our stuff in it. <laughs> It's like some random dude in a truck, completely unmarked. It's kind of amazing how all the stuff actually got there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it was like three months and then we had opening and then we were there for a few more weeks. I actually got crazy sick at one point from food poisoning. Not fun to have in the middle of the jungle. And my assistant actually had to feed me for almost two weeks. I had no energy. Wow. I couldn't get out of bed. He had to feed me. He was actually my assistant assistant. <laughs> Not just my, wow. m- my work assistant. He was also my caretaker for two weeks. <laughs> and, and I was just so bad. And I, w- I wanted to go to the hospital, but they were like, the closest hospital is a three-hour drive away. Yeah, I don't really trust hospitals in the middle of nowhere in China. So I just toughed it out in my hotel room and eventually got better. So it was a really interesting experience. (laughs) Can I uh, hit you with a question? Because we were speaking really recently. Yeah. uh, And the subject of classical music came up. Um, and the way you were talking about classical, uh, talking about Broadway in that you have all these really skilled people, really highly trained going for jobs with no demand for their skills. That really reminded me of classical music. Uh, what do you think of, what do you think of the market's interest in demand, uh, it's interest and demand declining in the past in like recent years, like people really aren't going to concert halls. Uh, what do you think it's doing wrong? And what do you think we, we can do to, to fix it? Yeah. Very interesting question. I think a lot of the problems that classical musicians complain about, you know, so mm-hmm. uh, people not going to the symphony halls and mm-hmm. uh, people not listening. It's kind of a result of themselves, I think to a certain extent where, mm-hmm classical music and the structures that have been built around it uh, has propagated a sense of like being elite for the past three or 400 years. So for, or maybe not like during box time, I feel like box time, like classical was just what everyone did slash listen to. But when the more popular styles of music that, that we know it, today so stuff like i don't know a jazz rock mm-hmm. and all that stuff when that mm-hmm. stuff started happening late 1800s 1900s classical people started and this is the sense that i get it might be completely not correct but i feel like hey like our stuff is more technical than yours so it's better and, you know mm-hmm. like check all these chord changes blah blah, blah. like jazz so just chord changes <laughs> right 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 it's just like <laughs> And no, you have to dress in a suit yeah. to come to the concert. <laughs> Stuff like that, where I mean, Prince exists. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So just all of these like formalities and the branding of classical today, where, and you see it in everything from like uh, the pricing of concerts um, at the symphony to, 
to, I don't know, even like the packaging of classical discs. Like if you look at a piano concerto album from Long Long or something, he's always dressed up well. And this you it's very rare or like the cover is some like impressionist art kind of thing. So <laughs> it has this very exclusive slash high class branding, which I think a lot of classical people are unwilling to let go of because I think people like you, Drew, uh, I think you recognize this and you're trying to shift the branding of classical uh, and kind of decoupling the actual music with how it's presented. And I noticed you do that, you know, you, you do all of these streams and you do like these online things and so many people are not, you know, they're, they're still getting caught up in, in order to perform, I have to first put on a tuxedo or in order to perform, uh, I have to do this, blah, blah, blah. And I just don't feel like it's necessary to, uh, or I think it's about time to start decoupling uh, the music portion of classical and the way that it has been presented for the past 100 or two or 200 years, you know? So stop presenting it like this, like this uh, form for old people. And <laughs> no, for real, like facts. W- w- when I talk to my friends about, Hey, let's go to the symphony or something. A lot of them are going to say, oh, well, don't old people go to that. Like there's no young people who go to that. It's not cool. Uh, so I, I think the more that we can do to separate the actual music, you know, judge the music for what it is uh, without the additional, the baggage, I would say like the baggage that has (laughs) accumulated over the past century. And, and, and it's also like when you think about the composers and, you know, you see them in all their wigs and everything, it just has this very, (sighs) You know, just like this old person vibe. And I think we need to get away from that. A big part of it is that huge branding problem. It is thought as old people stuff. And the the clear issue is, is that it's also obvious that a lot of people actually like classical music. Even young people will listen to it, but often it's attached to some other medium. A majority of film music is inherently classical. Yes, there's different intentions. Yes, it's attached to a different medium. But if you go to one of these playing against pitcher, it's Jurassic Park, it's Harry Potter or whatever, super classical orchestral music, and those things are sold out, they're huge tickets, it's filled with young Mm. people, everyone loves it. Even in the middle of COVID, I went to some like outdoor candlelight concerts here. It's all film music, 50 bucks a ticket, young people. They love it. Mm -hmm. I've played candlelight. Exactly. Like people like love it. They go crazy. They sell out. And that's even a pricey ticket. And it's and it's because yeah. it's not it's not couched in that elite in elitist thing. Um, yeah. The other issue, particularly in the States, is that if you go to Europe, classical music's just embedded into the culture and the heritage. Right. You know, there's some sense of like national pride, yeah. like, oh, like it was first performed here 300 years ago. There's none of that in America, which makes sense <laughs> because it's it was yeah. brought over here. It doesn't feel like tied to the national identity yes there's lots of american composers um yes like there's a lot of benefits of like the synthesis of all these different cultures brought together uh but you know we we don't have 600 year old buildings that we go in and like listen to the thing that was written here it's just not part of that what do we have jazz rock all these other things that we do think of like impugned 
uh, with like at least in America that ideal. And lastly, with classical music, there there's also this confusing element that it's not really true that even in the Baroque Renaissance that a lot of people were listening to classical music. It's just it was the first to really get written down, and it was the most right, profitable right. and run by the elites. And that's what we talk about in music school because there's not either great records or it's not our focus. Classical music has never been the most popular music globally ever. There was popular music then, but now what I think has been one of the biggest shifts is financially over the past hundred years, that pop music right. is so much more valuable just from a money standpoint than anything classical. We, they're not worrying about patrons anymore. If you want an expensive ticket, go to a Taylor Swift concert. Or like go to go to these like big name artists, and it and it makes a lot of sense. It's yeah. it's more valued and it's more valuable. Your if your classical piece gets played on the radio, you're not getting much. Ariana Grande killing it. <laughs> the one thing that I also think we don't pay attention to a lot in classical music is the act of playing classical music means you're playing somebody else's intellectual property. Go. You're essentially a cover band. And the right. only way to actually really make money in perpetuity is to create the intellectual property. Um, and I'm, I'm speaking to the choir, the composer, mm-hmm. Trevor. <laughs> Trevor gets it. <laughs> but it's true, right? Like when you are playing somebody else's music, you really can't make a lot of money on it compared to if it was your own music because you can't get the sync license and you can't right. there's there's so there's so much business infrastructure now and i don't think classical music can even tap into it in the same way that's a really good point there's also praising the the old and that's something that almost all art forms bump into but none have put yeah. so much weight uh on on so much history than music compared to Classical yeah. art and your typical, you know, art studios, they look at the old greats or whatever. There's tons of museums. Um, but also what what theater does, what art does, modern art, modern theater, almost every other art from modern dance, is they're not really as burdened by their history. Broadway is yeah. continually putting on new shows and they put them up front and center. Hamilton, new, right. $2 billion. It's brand new. It's out there. They pushed it. Yes, we, we love some of these old Broadway things from 100 years ago, but we're not talking about what was done 200 years ago. We're not talking about what was done 300 years ago. Modern art, the MoMA, you, some of the most expensive art in the world is you know a toilet seat on a wall, but it sells for $150 <laughs> million because- Like a white because piece of it's, paper. Yeah, but actually, yeah, <laughs> it's still valued and it's heavily promoted. The moment is going out there promoted. Right. When you have a contemporary piece of art, it's promoted. Only in music yeah. is like yeah. the new stuff absolutely poo-pooed on. It's 1% of what uh, an orchestra puts out that year. They brag about commissioning yeah. like four people, maybe. They're all white dudes. The music sounds like it could have also been written 50 years ago. So like it, a big problem too in that it's so attached to its own baggage that whenever they have some new initiative – Almost always it falls flat. Like I can really only point to like the LA feel for like doing a good enough job. They're like, okay, we're bringing in 50 composers. We're putting money in it and we're actually going to promote it. We're not just making it the piece before intermission. Right, right. That's, That's a really good point. And do you think that some of it has to do with how the conservatories are set up to train people? Uh, I personally have not, 
you know, went to that kind of school. So do you think that the way that people are taught kind of influences them to stay within the bounds of history? And like people like Drew are quite rare, I would have to say. Like people who graduated from a really great conservatory and they're trying to like rebrand classical into like new formats new channels and but like a lot of my friends who have been to those kinds of schools sometimes when i talk to them about classical they kind of give me this vibe like oh if you don't get it like you're just not good enough yeah yeah Yeah, bro ain't that weird (laughs) that's extremely that's just like extremely not offensive but it makes me not want to learn more about what you're doing where if i say like oh this classical piece sounds a little strange to my ears instead of explaining like oh maybe like this is why and you know i have enough background to understand that kind of talk they're just like oh like maybe if you don't get it that's just your problem you know it's it's art and <laughs> is is that just me or is that is like is there some sort of truth to that yeah <laughs> well i will say speaking to your question like you you asked like what is it about the conservatory training is geared towards a a success model that existed about a hundred years ago where you would win place well in an international competition you'd win a, a an audition at an orchestra and I just don't think that even works in the modern, yeah. the modern age. The market isn't big enough. And there, with the modern educational system, you know, churning out so many skilled string players these days, and with a market that's declining, as we're seeing, you know, orchestras reduce pay and and cut seats. Uh, I just don't think it's like a. It's just not a. It's a path that doesn't make sense anymore. And and I think we all. I mean, I kind of saw that pretty early on and I didn't want to participate in that. They're more and more yeah. uh like while Drews are rare, I think it's becoming slightly slightly more common and slightly more acceptable. Like even within a school as staunched in tradition as the Juilliard, you're getting more interesting people who are going out and going into other paths. And more recently in the past, let's say ten to fifteen years, you're seeing Juilliard more and more embrace people. Drew is getting called back in to speak to Juilliard. 15 years ago, that probably doesn't happen. People who've gone in through Juilliard, gone into film, gone into you know television, uh, gone into business, gone into law or whatever, that before was probably yeah. seen as like, a oh, um, we teach you music. And since they're not doing that, we're not paying much attention to them. I think they realized like, wait, this is a stupid idea. <laughs> like these people are the ones who are super successful and very public and yeah. like would make us look awesome. So it seems like, a hundred years later, they're like, "Oh, hold up, we love you." You know, you're on, you're on, you're on Netflix. <laughs> Come you're a back. DJ now. That's really cool. Come back. Make us look good. So part of it is <laughs> self-serving. I think for me, one of the issues with school, while it is changing, obviously too late, but it is trying to even, you know, if if Juilliard's doing it, I know my undergraduate uh, was a little more forward-thinking because they knew that their students were way less likely to win in those traditional models. I think why Juilliard's, yeah. Curtis's, Rice's, Michigan's, USC's, Yale's, like a lot of these really good schools, like why they were so resistant is because, well, everyone else needs to adapt, but our students are still winning the jobs. Mm. And I think that's what really delayed it. But of course, it didn't really it didn't really help people out when a pandemic comes and wipes out all of your orchestras and the top tier orchestras. They've had to adapt. Right. And suddenly 
having that diverse skill set is highly encouraged. For me, the biggest issue is that most of these schools, it's tough to levy a ton of blame on them because in order to have a successful career as a musician, you need you know 20 years of knowledge. They got four. Like, are they going to make you good at your instrument? Will that help you? Are they going to make you good at theory? Like, they, they can only do so much and you can only work so much. Even if you're the most hyper-efficient person, you're the most knowledgeable, you do everything they say, that's still not going to be enough to have a successful career. You got to go out there and keep working at it post-school. But with the schools and the institutions as it's set up now, I think one of the biggest problems is that it's so not self-serving or cyclical and that most of the training Mm. that they're teaching people is in order to train future people that is in order to train future people so that we keep feeding this system. We keep feeding this monster that not much of the train. It takes outliers to go out into the world and to affect it in unique and different ways. We want people back in the system and they, it, the system might not serve them well and they go through and they'll get their doctorate. And what do they do? They just train more. So it's like these little bunnies having a DMA sex <laughs> and creating more doctrics. <laughs> and then the, like the, it's, it's too many and there's too many teachers. Every faculty job gets 500 applications, no yeah. matter if it's in the middle of nowhere. That, that's exactly what it and is. And it's a problem because they need to get people in their school because that's how they get paid. And they love doing it. We all love teaching. We love spreading it. But alluding back to Broadway, it's the same scenario. It's a, it's a math problem. There's not enough seats. Yeah. There's too many highly qualified people. Half the people walking out with undergraduate degrees would absolutely light up people getting PhDs 50 years ago with just their knowledge, their skill. Yeah. There's too many people out there doing good things and we have to adapt now. It's not a choice. You put the period and I'm going to actually just change it to a semicolon and also say, and that's why you have to be an entrepreneur. The thing is, is like as a musician, like if you study the history of music, it was always the traveling troubadour, like the the homeless dude who was like kind of like good at plucking strings. You know what I'm saying? That was your band. Yeah. So we have this rich history of like kind of not having a lot and not understanding how to turn our value, which is our music and our essence and our storytelling into a tangible asset that is money. You know, the institutions try to do it. They try to teach you that, but honestly it is up to you to build your own economic system. Just like you would a business. You have to build, you are a business as a musician. And I think if we kind of like had that conversation more often, I think that would fundamentally change the conversation in in the landscape. Brian, my question for you, bro, is are you've always been like the person that tells me like the craziest new innovations, <laughs> the cutting edge innovations in technology. And I'm wondering, do you have you seen anything recently that's like changing the game in the music industry, like a like a service that's being provided to independent uh, musicians or some sort of like AI assistance. Like what are some things that you're learning in the tech space that could be helpful to musicians? Not really from a cutting edge perspective, but just, I think the maturation of the internet is at a point now where if you're not on the internet, I have to ask why, <laughs> you know, if you don't have a website that shows off your portfolio. And I think it's an extremely bullish time to be living as a musician in terms of all the tools that you have at your disposal to make yourself look good. Mm -hmm. Um, So even 20 years ago, if you wanted to go make like a recording of yourself, that would have been a lot more expensive than what it is now. 
you know, you can get like an interface, a decent microphone for 200 bucks and you can make your portfolio uploaded to the internet. You have Squarespace, you have Wix, you have all of these great things to build your website and for people to find you. And it's not a question of like, oh, I'm not going to do it because people aren't going to find me anyway. It's like, how do you know that? You know, I was found from my blog. I know tons of people who were found from their websites. So in terms of technology, I think uh, these software services are at a, at a point where everyone can use them. And that's everything from, you know, making your website with WordPress to like recording yourself with GarageBand or something. It's, it's included for free on all Macs. Like if you buy a Mac, you have GarageBand. You can record yourself. You can mix yourself. And mm-hmm. all of these like information to do all of this is for free on the internet. So uh, in terms of empowering yourself, like Drew said, like making yourself as a business, uh, the first thing that a business to do should do is give themselves some online real estate with their website, make it look nice. And there's never been a better time to do that. There's just so many tools that you can use now. And I'm consistently surprised with how many, not only musicians, but like the people in the arts, I think often get stuck in this like anti-technology kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't need the technology. (laughs) I'll just focus on my art. People will find me. And that's (laughs) when I'm playing in the subways. (laughs) Yeah. That's just like the dumbest thing that I've heard. Uh, Just like straight up. Because it's so easy to do. You can do it in a day. You can set up a website in a day. Then maybe people will actually find you. But like, that's the most exciting thing to me when it comes to music, I think. And I can only say that because I don't pay attention to a lot of the music stuff because don't do a lot of music anymore these days. But yeah, from a tools and services and promotional perspective, you have so many tools now. Dude, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for putting that on wax for our our listeners because sometimes it's like, it's so paralyzing to figure out where to get started. And the way you laid it out was brilliant. And there seems to be such beauty in the DIY and like the rawness of it. So there's even a bigger benefit in that a lot of the tools and the knowledge is available and easy to access and looks good. Plus, people like it when it's not even perfect. So (laughs) like, you know, it's a win-win. Right. That's true. That's true. Like there's, uh, whenever I see people, especially on Broadway, like these music supervisors, they're always looking for audition takes that maybe look a little raw. You know, it's good if you record it with a good microphone, but they're looking for like raw stuff. Don't cut it up too much. Don't EQ yourself. (laughs) Auto-tune, you know. Uh, But all those tools are there. Just maybe uh, it allows you to present yourself for different contexts, right? So if you're trying to audition for a show, maybe you don't use all of those like extreme processing tools. But if you're trying to make something polished for more like mainstream consumption, you have all these tools available for free. Uh, and what a great time that we have all of these things in our computer. You don't even have to go to the <laughs> studio and pay a hundred bucks an hour for someone to do it. Dude, it's, it's a crazy time because like if you go back like 200 years you had to pretty much suck a prince's dick like (laughs) you had to be really good friends with some aristocracy just to even have a chance 
to write your symphony. You know what I mean? That's true. It's, it sucks. Like we're this is so yeah. great. Speaking of like getting up to now, so you skip school because uh, of snow. <laughs> you get on Broadway. Next thing you know, you're getting food poisoning in a Chinese jungle, and now <sighs> you've gone up and you're working at Kinsta, and you're doing all these various yeah. writing things. Like, how do you get into this new space of like doing like web content? That's a pretty dynamic journey. I think from from the outside, it looks crazier than it is. So after, and maybe we can talk about blockchain in a bit, but basically in 2017, maybe uh, early 2018, when whenever that big bull market was. Oh, yeah. Uh, I basically did not like my job in Las Vegas. Uh, and not because of the job. It was just Las Vegas is very depressing. And it was affecting my my happiness. I guess I'm very sensitive to the things going on around me. So I decided to leave and I sold some crypto and basically just took a year off mm-hmm. uh, and went to a bunch of different places, travel around Europe. Uh, I went to see some friends and eventually I ended up in Japan. Japan has always appealed to me. And I think part of that is like, a fragment left over from growing up with Pokemon and all these different <laughs> Japanese things like the Sony Walkman and all of these Japanese yeah. things. So I always wanted to go to Japan and maybe even live there. So that kind of happened and I was still not really employed because I quit my job and I wasn't doing anything. I was just traveling, taking pictures and all this random stuff. And long story short, I met my now wife and we had a baby. That is a long story short. <laughs> Fast forward. Wife, long story baby. Short. So after the baby or no, no, like maybe a few months before he was to be born, something just like started in me. I was like, oh crap, I should probably start looking for a job oh, that'll do it <laughs> and and stop doing this single lifestyle or just couple lifestyle without a baby because she because at that point she was working and uh i was just doing my own stuff you know i was making some money on the internet but it was not like a job that i was taking for real mm-hmm. i was thinking like what can i do here in japan like I can't really do music stuff because all of the music stuff I was doing is back in the States and would require me to be there. So like, what kind of remote stuff can I do? Uh, so um, at that point, I was using WordPress for a long time. So I was thinking, oh, maybe I can find something with WordPress. You know, it's, uh, it's software. So there's probably many jobs that don't require me to be at the office. I eventually stumbled on Kinsta. They were looking for... Uh, a support team person in Asia. And I read through the job description and I was like, oh, I know like 30% of the stuff for this job. And I was like, okay, I'll apply for it because I was desperate. I was about to have a baby and things are about to get real. (laughs) (laughs) So I applied. I honestly didn't expect to to get a response because this is the thing when I that I was saying before when people ask me like who I am the resume I sent them had nothing to do with WordPress you know it said like keyboard programmer on Broadway <laughs> and then keyboardist at this huge show in Las Vegas so why would anyone hire me for 
a tech company, right? Yeah. And it turns out like it was a really good time because Kinsta was expanding a lot. So they were really looking for someone fast. And I got an interview. They were like, oh, we'd love to talk to you. Uh, let's have a call next week. So that whole week I was spending all day trying to learn the rest of the stuff that I had to know. And yeah, I ended up getting that job and I did the support for like a year. Uh, and then I moved over to marketing department. Uh, so now I do like content stuff. Yeah, it's really nice. So it was basically just uh, because I suddenly felt I had to be responsible. Well, <laughs> you took another door. You just took the other door. So many people would go, okay, now what? I, I'm going into this new sphere. I need to go get another degree. I need to go back to school. You know what? More debt. I don't right. have enough already. Let's keep collecting. Uh, but no, you you right. just you just went for it immediately, and you you skipped the steps. And obviously, like <laughs> like like we keep harping on this so much for your uniqueness and your background and that other experience was probably the most appealing thing. They probably got a stack of one other one hundred other people who went through some boot camp, some typical degree, some normal internship, and then through one hundred of those, just like Broadway. Are you kidding me? And that's super <laughs> interesting and. The other strain of that, who'd have thought you're kind of like fun off uh, no plan 2008 blog would lead you to where you are now here in 2020? Yeah, I, I think the blog definitely helped as well because I had also written a lot of stuff about WordPress. Um, so I was able to at least demonstrate the knowledge. And actually, I think one of the most important things was in my cover letter, I was mentioning how I think I would be really good in customer support, like these high stress kind of roles, because I spent years talking with actors <laughs> and um, directors and all, and like in these extremely high stress places where, you know, we have two weeks to put on this show. Everyone's like stressed out and everything. So I definitely picked up on a lot of the communication skills. Uh, so that actually translated pretty well over to the job at Kinsta. I love how you highlighted that because a lot of times we don't look at situations we put ourselves in as skills. Like right. you, that has nothing to do with like the technical aspect of performing your job. That is a, an interpersonal part of the job that is necessary. And you highlighted your value and experience in doing that. See, we as classical musicians often don't feel the, at least maybe I'm speaking for myself we don't feel like we're useful in any other contexts yeah but that's not true the discipline that it takes to like pick up an instrument every day and try to get better like that is discipline that can be applied in any other field right. and if you can show like look i went to conservatory i know i haven't really done this job necessarily but this is what i was able to do with my determination yeah this is what i can i can take that determination and give it to, and give it to give it to you you know, yeah, that's that's a really good point. And like, just just to add on that, like, that's totally right. People don't see the growth that they have from past experiences as a, as a skill. And if you think about just practically speaking, someone who has been in the conservatory for so many years and has found some success in in that part of life, it's like they're probably pretty disciplined. You know, uh, their time management is probably good. These things are the things that you can't teach with a book because it mm. actually takes time for someone to to grow into those characteristics. But 
all of the technical stuff uh, you can just go on YouTube and read about, you know? Mm. So that's really important as well. So if you don't have to sell yourself short, because uh, a lot of people don't have skills, like how do I talk to people <laughs> when I'm stressed? <laughs> so, musicians. so many people can't do that. You know, they, they just shut down. Yeah. And if you can do that, if you can like manage your time well, that's actually really useful in the world of like business. Something to add on top of that, I think the biggest benefit of music and like athletics why if you go into one of those in school you're gonna perform well or whatever and it's it's obviously not right. it's not really actually the music or it's not really actually the sports although like what it takes to go into here is nice being healthy and in, in sports is nice but what i think about it from like a global perspective is that going through and being able to master some craft just simply gives you a template for how to learn something and how to improve at something like yeah. no matter what yeah. If you want to be the master so of true. brushing your teeth, we know the method. <laughs> Look at the history. Practice <laughs> it daily, consistently. Analyze. Self-record your toothbrushing. Like, go through, audition your toothbrushing in front of friends. Try out different tools. How does it perform in this bathroom? How does it perform in this bathroom? Do right, I go right. from the left to the right? There's just simply a method of improvement. And that's why so many people push push their kids into music or push their kids to sports yeah. or dance is it's a nice template and the moment you realize that this is not only is it useful in music it's probably more useful outside and you apply that to computer program to writing or whatever the sky's right. the limit and you've done that that's a really good point and that re- that reminds me of a blog post i put out back in maybe february or march i was basically writing a post about how i think if you're like a full-time musician you should start trying to pick up some new skills. And I was saying like, I, because I don't think Broadway is going to rebound within the next six months. At that Mm -hmm. point, there were a lot of like newspapers and like industry influencers saying, Oh, we'll, we'll be back in six months. Don't worry. You know, this is like a short term thing. Mm -hmm. And I was, I put out a blog post that said completely the opposite. And, you know, I got some hate Mm -hmm. mail. I got a ton of hate mail. Um, People were like, there was some like group that had shared it within the group. And my friend was in that group and Uh a bunch of these like musicians were just trashing me. And, Mm -hmm. and like the blog post wasn't meant to be incendiary or something like that. It was actually, Hey, like if you're going to be unemployed for the next six months, maybe it's good to learn a new skill instead of, you know, being get caught up in your sadness or something. (laughs) And I think you know, there, it was kind of a high stress time, but I think it had to be said. And a lot of people actually re- reached out to me and said that because I read your plo- post, I started to learn how to code and all of this other stuff. And I think a lot of people uh, who were not approving of that post kind of got caught up in the thing that many of us do where uh, when we get so when we're very experienced with something. So like, uh, Drew, you've been playing the viola for so long, you know, I've been Mm -hmm. playing the piano for a long time. We kind of, we tend to compress the time that it took to get to where we are in order into something very, very small. So we say, oh, like that wasn't a lot of work to to get to where we are. But we tend to look at new activities, new skills from that uh, lens so for someone who's been doing the music stuff for a long time, if they have to feel like, oh, now I have to learn how to code, it feels impossible. Mm-hmm. But 
think back to when you first started playing your instrument. You know, even playing a scale seemed impossible. I think that kind of goes along what Trevor was saying, where, you know, you should just, instead of making excuses, you know, just try it and maybe look at it for what it is instead of through your already tinted lens or whatever. <laughs> I love that. One of the big things, too, is like, I, I get that incendiary reaction because, yeah. you know, it's like you read the headline or whatever, even without intention. It's that, oh my God, it's the devaluation of my art and my craft. I'm not valuable and you don't see the arts as valuable and like we should be supported, you know, get some more stimulus and like everyone, everyone's consuming Netflix and like, how dare you say I should do other things. Uh, And there are some articles out there, you know, poo-pooing, why didn't you do something, you know, useful for capitalism? (laughs) And I hear you. But it sounds like both with the blog and like what we try to encourage on here, we're not saying like, that your art's not valuable or that like, you know, all that hard work is, is useless. In fact, we are saying because of your art, you are in fact super useful in other fields. Yeah. And in fact, going out and doing those other things can bring you more happiness, bring you more income, make you a better musician and make you a better artist. The right. further out I leave music, the better my art has gotten. Right. And so this is an opportunity That's a really good to go point, out yeah. and like yeah. Drew going out and working on video, filming himself all the time is a huge aspect. And like later we learn, oh, wait, you should be self-taping. That's how you get better. He was doing it. He went out and did these <laughs> other things. And in fact, that's what's helped his career, like us going out and doing other things. Uh, it comes full circle. And so like I view these, you know, we're, we're looking at these problems as opportunities. Boy, do they suck in the moment. Yeah. But going out and learning programming is not a harm or a devaluation of your art. In fact, it's better. You are someone who's super creative, who, who knows some highly skilled thing. That's true. And you can go out and program and create things for music and bring that back into the world. And you might have had more impact on your art, exactly. your community, uh, your future and the future of your art if you actually left music and were able to bring something back to it. So true. Makes yourself even more valid. I think, yeah, right? You know, you go out and code something that you can use your, yourself, you know, you, all your friends can use. It makes everyone more valuable. And it's, it's just, it allows you to participate. I think that the biggest thing that I'm learning from listening to a lot of entrepreneurial podcasts and just business and money and investing is that just because your, your thing that you do has value doesn't mean that it's kind of like a river. I view my, my, my music as in my creative ability as a river and it's the difference between just letting the water that's already existing go by or i can damn it i'm sorry like epa i know it's bad but that's just <laughs> the example i don't believe in this either but for right now you, you put a dam there and then you turn that residual energy that's just going to happen anyway yeah. into money if you're just going to make covers anyway Start a Patreon. Like at least people will have a way to give you money. You know what I mean? Uh, That's true. Part of the example that I did in real life was like, I know how to play viola, but nobody wants to hire me. I guess I'm just going to play for free in the subways and then people will at least get an exposure. I think there, you just got to kind of, the key is, is finding ways to create those dams, finding ways to create those opportunities for people to support you. And oftentimes it's 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 counterintuitive you you can't get that in an institution right you can't get that in a traditional job anymore 
Speaking of support, <laughs> have you ever heard of tokenization? So this is kind of shifting into blockchain space. Let's hear it. Hit us. We're no, ready for blockchain. Well, well yes, but can you explain it for the audience? Yeah. All right. Well, before you get into tokenization, I think um, it might be good to just give like a two-minute explanation of blockchain. Yes. Yes, so please. It's Look, not like completely foreign. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that everyone has heard about Bitcoin by now, uh, but mm-hmm. the underlying technology that Bitcoin uses is called the blockchain. The blockchain is actually a really simple thing to understand. Uh, it's just a decentralized ledger. So instead of one party having the list of all the transactions, everyone on the network has a copy. And in, and in order to add a new entry to it, basically everyone needs to come to a consensus that this is the correct thing to add. And what blockchain represents is just something at a specific time. And the other part of it is that past entries can be changed. Mm-hmm. And that's actually like a really practical foundation for many use cases. So one of the top use cases, of course, is this decentralized finance that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have things like Bitcoin, which is which essentially has grown into a financial instrument of sorts. And that's possible because, because the ledger uh, that everyone who runs a Bitcoin node is keeping, um, you know, they all have a copy of all of the transactions that have taken place since mm-hmm. the start of the chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other part is that like, if you have block one and then you have block two, you have block three, block four, right? So block four actually has uh, what's called a cryptographic hash, which is a long string of numbers and letters, I guess, that basically represents the data from the previous block. So that's why it can't be changed. Because mm-hmm. if you go back in time and try to change something, then everything after it wouldn't make sense anymore because the hashes would be invalid. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's uh, contrary to centralized systems like PayPal or MasterCard or something where they own the, like they own all of the entries. So they actually can just go into whatever system that they have and just um, say like, oh, this transaction is, is, is actually this. Mm-hmm. So stuff like that is not possible on blockchain. So it gives you a really good way to timestamp, uh, to timestamp something in kind of a sensor-proof way. You know, no one can go back and change a previous block. And within the block, you can actually add some data. Uh, so, you know, if you want to prove that you publish something on a specific time, mm-hmm. uh, you can embed that within that block and f- for the rest of time until, you know, someday maybe. Patenting. You think that could be like a patenting methodology? Yeah, actually, yeah, that's, that's, be, that's being used for that use case as well. Wow. And like, so back to the idea of tokenization. So now mm-hmm. that we establish that, um, the blockchain can be used to show basically how much a party owns at mm-hmm. this specific time. We can actually issue tokens because the tokens you can transfer back and forth. And you can say like this address has this at this time. 
this address has this many tokens at this time. So that's why we see so many uh, financial use cases of blockchain because it's really it's really easy to use the ledger in order to send tokens back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. And since it's immutable, you know you can't go back and change it afterward. That means it's that's just a really good way of proving that you own something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so recently, there's been um, some news stories of uh, people actually tokenizing themselves. So they'll <laughs> issue shares. Uh, so like, think about you. There's like Apple stock. There's mm-hmm. Tesla stock, right? So you maybe issue 10,000 tokens and you sell them to people. You might sell them for, I don't know, a dollar a token. Mm-hmm. So that means people are able to buy $10,000 worth of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you attach some metrics to that token. You can say like, oh, this token represents 10% of the income that I'll earn uh, in the next 10 years. So maybe in the future, your token is worth more, you know, because your, your income has grown or you can say like the token is worth, I don't know, X percent of my time or something. And maybe someone redeems it for time with you in the future or something like that. Whoa, so, so the idea that you can issue tokens that represent your success is super interesting. And I think this is kind of the next step in this model we're seeing where now everyone has a Patreon, right? Everyone has a way for people to give you money, but that's not really like a direct investment because people give you money and, but they don't get like the financial side back. Mm -hmm. So something like tokenization lets you, invest in people like it's like an initial pu- it's like an ipo yeah. for you <laughs> i'm yeah. going public yeah, yeah that's it that's exactly what it is it's like hey uh shares of drew is available I for one dollar hey there's uh, no there's no kind of share baby it's just <laughs> right. for you it's just for right. you fan. there's only one that's fascinating <laughs> yeah it really does sound like that's next level patreon uh i, I know i've heard about some instances obviously like a computer program boot camp there's a lot of them that <laughs> You know, we'll take some percentage of your income post job placement. Yeah. It's a sweet deal. I've heard of some other other things like that for doctors or other people going through expensive schooling for something. And like people, you kind of like audition yourself and they'll g- give you money and based on some type of return. But this seems like an even further or more accessible um, avenue to go about with that method. It's kind of wild. Yeah. So what what were you saying though? So are there other, what are some other uses that you're seeing for blockchain? Oh yeah. So blockchain has, blockchain has a lot of use cases. Basically any use case that, that is kind of ripe for automation, I think can be, can leverage blockchain to some extent. So, you know, there has been projects that are focused on patenting, South Korea is actually moving their national identification cards to a blockchain-based system. Um, so the idea of essentially tokenizing someone's identity, and that's really, that's really powerful. And I'll explain why that's powerful, but there's basically two kinds of main blockchains. There's ones that don't support what are called smart contracts, mm-hmm. and then there's ones that support smart contracts. So 
a non-smart contract platform would be like Bitcoin, where the function of it, people say, is just virtual gold. Uh, where you buy it, there's a limited supply of 21 million. Mm-hmm. And that's like kind of the main use case. But there's other blockchain platforms like Ethereum, where it, it essentially gives you a decentralized platform to run computer code. So it's basically, uh, it allows you to run logic and you have to you know, pay in whatever crypto, uh, it's called gas. Um, you pay ether and that is transferred to gas and the gas is actually powering the Is this smart an contract. RPG? Are we talking so, about like, what's the... <laughs> is this wait, some what? RPG? Like we're talking getting ether and... <laughs> oh, right, and then right, you right. cast spells. This kind of sounds like like <laughs> that's what's happening. Like League like of Legends. Yeah, no, this is just King of Hearts. <laughs> it's just like then you use right. Thundaga, and then you'll get you know. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you run through really quickly for our audience because this is this is pretty. This we're is getting heady. in the crypto weeds. I've been yeah. I've been boxing and reading and watching videos. So I yeah. But can you explain smart contracts to people? Like what yeah, is yeah. a smart contract? Can you maybe give some examples of what they can they could be? Yeah. So a smart contract uh, is basically um, just code that runs on a decentralized network. So when I say that, like how. Ethereum works is many computers around the world. Uh, what the, so those are called nodes. Mm-hmm. God, Siri just talk to me. Siri's Siri doesn't say to bro. I that's part of the problem. Yeah. That's that's very right. in line. Yeah. Uh, so what I was saying. Oh yeah. So you have these nodes around the world, and these nodes are controlled by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and since these people need to hold a certain amount of tokens in order to run the node then that's kind of um, the skin that they have in the game. And it mm-hmm. influences them to add to act in a good way. What that means is just, you know, they won't insert any malicious code or, or something like that because the point of a smart contract is to run all the code on all of these nodes and every node should come to the same thing. So if you run like, what's one plus one? And all the nodes should return two. Mm-hmm. If there is a node that returns three, uh, and if that is seen as like the, the correct answer, it has the potential to cause a lot mm-hmm. of issues, right? So like if your smart contract is, is saying, so this is an example of a, of a smart contract, like, oh, if the weather is less than 80 degrees today, then pay this person $5, okay? So mm-hmm. that's like a basic example of a smart contract. So if you had a malicious actor uh, who who uh, supplies like the wrong temperature, mm-hmm. then what ends up happening is uh, their, their funds get slashed. So they mm-hmm. know they can't access the stake that they have wow. anymore. So that's kind of why blockchain works. That's how the security works. Because in order to participate in the actual um, run, uh, the running of the code, mm-hmm. uh, you have to put something at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why it's important for like tokens and stuff to have a value because if things were worth zero, there's nothing at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's just like a basic example of a smart contract. Just you run code in a decentralized way. Because uh, if you run code in one location, there's a pretty good chance that someone could, you know, give you the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. And as we, we've seen in the world, you know, sometimes it's better to de- decentralize the power. 
because uh, if you only have one party, you know, they can censor people, they can change history, mm-hmm. they can do all these weird things. But um, in a de- in a decentralized network, as long as the majority of participants, um, as long as they come to the same answer, uh, then you know it's censor proof. It's incredible. Hearing this and like thinking of our our listeners who are interested, we already slapped them in the face with a couple uh, finance episodes. I'm wondering uh, two separate things, and we can tackle them separately. And then I'm sure Drew has uh, 18 million more questions than I um because he's in the, he's he's boxing he's in the weeds on this but yeah. I guess w- one avenue I'd like to see his take is like from like a financial perspective like what should like a musician or a listener like like hearing this should they be monitoring maybe not specific advice but like yes like put this in here be careful of this here's something to consider and then on the other avenue like directly what is knowledge and interest in this how does that directly affect like a musician or an artist and or a creative? Mm, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer the first question, I think kind of expanding on the idea of smart contracts, I think that many smart contracts are tied to specific platforms. So now the kind of predominant smart contract platform is Ethereum, uh, which is the number two crypto behind Bitcoin. And I think over the next 10 to 10 to 15 years, we're going to see uh, platforms like Ethereum kind of take over a lot of the mundane administrative tasks of everyday life. So just, just like on the smart contract uh, talk, we see that in countries that are more bullish on things like blockchain, uh, for, for example, in South Korea, Korea, they're actually moving um, a lot of things that are typically done by humans, you know, within the back office of the government or something, because a lot of those tasks are repetitive, you know, like verify this person's identity. If they're this age, then they get, you know, this kind of unemployment income or whatever. So Mm -hmm. that's a great example of a smart contract. And the first layer of that is first tokenizing someone's identity into something that can be parsed by the smart contract. So mm-hmm. by creating their identity into a blockchain native entity, so that's just saying like this person's name is this, age is this, put it on, on the blockchain. The blockchain can then pull that information and do whatever it needs. So mm-hmm. maybe like once a month, the smart contract can check this person, you know, if they're this age, then run this smart contract. So that actually leads to a lot of efficiency gains mm-hmm. and kind of like on a side note, this is why I think it's a bad time to become a lawyer. <laughs> I, I, I think in the next 25 to 30 years, we're going to see a lot of the stuff that lawyers do be replaced by smart contracts. Whoa. Cause if you think about it, a lot of the stuff that a lawyer does is quite repetitive and you're basically it, interpreting the law and then mm-hmm. making a decision if you can create a smart contract that takes the law into account and this won't work for all things, but like if you have, for example, issuing a parking ticket or something, uh, if you have a camera that records, this car is here and then timestamps that on the blockchain, the smart contract can run and then it'll make a choice. You know, there's no need for, you know, let's go to court for this parking ticket. You know, like we already proved that you were here 
or you were going to speed and the smart contract resulted in this. And if it's like tied into some sort of finance system or even if it was like tied into like the tax system, it could just like um, add that towards your next year tax or something, you know? Oh, so man, they're gonna make a killing on me. Dude. <laughs> oh my god, LA like with parking L- and stuff. Man, oh LA parking god. tickets. It's gonna be a the first trillion dollar industry, or just to come up. Can I can yeah. I actually just really interject because you're on a roll. I wanted to I wanted to create an analogy. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is these smart contracts can be exponentially linked. So you could have actual real chain reactions. Uh, There's a possibility of like real estate contracts being done this way. It's like, look, this much money is an escrow. We check that cross references with a bank. There's a ton of that already. Yeah, bro. So what I'm, what I'm wondering is in the music industry as like an independent artist, do you see possible business opportunities? Because yeah. this is, this is like a new app store. Remember when apps first came out and it was like, there's an app for that. There's literally an app for that now. Like it, it's right. at scale. So smart contracts are like a new platform for apps that could automate entire basic tasks. What sort of tasks that are repetitive that musicians do? You think there's going to be a smart contract for practicing? For complaining. Maybe we can get like, (laughs) (laughs) well, I think that when I think, when I say automating and like repetitive, I mean things that are not creative in nature. So the purpose Mm. why a lot of musicians do repetitive things like practice scales or whatever, it's to further their craft and not necessarily to, you know, just to do the paperwork. Mm. Uh, So a lot of people in the, who work in like the tax office or something, they're just doing paperwork. You know, they're saying this person's name and then whatever, what, whatever, like, so they do like a lot of that stuff. And about musicians, I think blockchain technology, there's, there's, there's like a few things I can think of. Like, I think the music licensing side of things is kind of ripe for disruption. Uh, it's let's go quite outdated. I think. Yeah, I'd be interested, Ashley, to get your thoughts on that, Trevor. So, like, a few basic examples would be copywriting a waveform of your master file on the blockchain or something. And uh, there's another thing where, you know, like we said before, you can tokenize yourself and sell off shares and essentially tokenize your future potential as an investment for people. And then, like, I guess... The other thing would just be to move licensing over to a smart contract completely. So that kind of abstracts away these huge licensing companies, which take a large um, portion of your profit Mm. uh, and just like putting that into a smart contract. And that's so cool because it reduces so many of these like administrative overheads that just exist because they do. You know, they don't have to exist, but it's just like they've, they've been here. They have power. They have control. This is the way that it's been done. Uh, but that's, that's like, that's really an exciting implementation of blockchain, I think, just to, and we've seen uh, in so many industries, like the main use case of blockchain is to destroy the party in the middle. Mm-hmm. So the party, like saying, hey, if you stream, then you get this amount of money. When you have, when you're able to just like, cancel that layer and just have some code there that says if a person streams send this amount of money 
And there's no need to like factor in how much percentage you have to take out of that to pay your employees in order to maintain the system. That's extremely Bro. interesting to me. This is blowing my mind because YouTube. I'm not uh, as knowledgeable about this as like Drew. All I know is, uh, you know, put money in Bitcoin when low, Bitcoin go high, sell Bitcoin. <laughs> and all the writings that now all these financial institutions are like buying up Bitcoin, your traditional banks, because they're like, wait a minute, this has huge potential. But with the smart contracts and kind of the legal system, one reason why law is such a high paying, desirable job in the US, as compared to a lot of other countries, I think of one of my friends marries a, a lawyer in the UK. So very similar system. We're like, oh, that's cool. You know, musician, marry a lawyer. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you won't, you won't die. You won't go hungry. Um, but he's like, he's like, yeah, we'll be fine. But actually in like the UK, it's, they're, they're not paid nearly as much. And it's not considered like as, to the degree of like America, like, oh, good lawyer. Oh, good. Yeah. You're not in public service taking care of people. Sweet. You're going to be rich. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> Right. But it's because he, he said in like the law in UK, there's less gray area and that's where you make your money. They will tell you that in law school, that when people bring up their concern, obviously, just like music school, they need more law students in their law school in order to survive. But one of the things they always say to them is like, there will always be a gray area. Hence, there will always be a need for lawyers. Right. And I'm very interested in the law. I'm very interested in politics. Um so, so yes, we need them. We need them out there. They're fighting for us. But that is a very good point that just like even a lot of computer programmers are getting pushed by the wayside because of automation, that's becoming yeah. somewhat, you know, switching from white collar to a blue collar job to the music sphere. I think raw potential talking about it, like the music licensing, I think it's sitting out there. It's such a huge issue as far as ownership. I think even digging in further. So yes to everything you said, if something gets streamed, if you're able to attach something to it in a node, it's no longer a guessing game. Poor ASCAP, poor BMI. No. They have to get like they have to guess a lot. Right. Certain industries say if, if someone plays uh my band piece or something, a middle school plays this band piece, they have to do surveys. They take a poll and they figure out and they kind of guesstimate. Right. And people are just kind of fine with that. I uh, uh, whatever. On the radio, there's so many different pieces. You know, they're they're assuming. Okay, you know, T-Swift, you get this. Okay, Trevor, you get zero dollars. Uh, no, one, no one cares. Uh, but but with these little, like, uh, going through and, like, keeping the, the information, like, embedded to that track, where it excites me, and I see a lot of potential, particularly for game-changing, I think in a positive, decentralized social sense to the artist, is that if you could assign the ID of individual yeah. samples and your contributions to a track, so that it's no longer gatekept by, say, a producer. If you created that drum sample, you created that sound, you created that melody, that rhythm, or whatever for that track, it could be individually ID'd with your percentage. Okay, they did 1% of this thing, they're getting 1%. It, this can remove a lot of the kind of disturbing ghosting industry, mm. for instance, in something yeah. like film music, where there's five people putting things in. <laughs> Whole different topic, but you could, you could easily say, okay, like they wrote this track, they can get money for it, regardless of whatever's public facing on the poster. That really excites me because even for classical music, like you said, we're just kind of like really good cover artists. 
uh, <laughs> it, it'll help our problem. <laughs> you, only you can play it that way. Um, a lot of classical musicians right. run into issues on the platforms as they exist now because it'll take you down and it'll say, was this the Berlin Phil? And you'll say, oh, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but your your stuff's constantly getting taken down and, and it's like you're copyright, you're copyright blocking yourself and you have to wait for Sony to say, yes, that's you, even though you posted it. Getting control and knowledge of what your where your intellectual property is going, I think this really can help creators and really solve the issue that we bumped in with Tidal and Spotify and all these platforms now. Because as it exists, I was very dissuaded and discouraged by the kind of devaluing from a monetary standpoint of music. There's a reason why, back to the beginning with the Joe Rogan podcast and all of that, why they're pouring $100 million in that. Combine all the top artists on Spotify, they're not even getting that, is because we see lots of value in this knowledge and this audience and this advertising. And even the traditional publishing companies and music companies and record labels are realizing that with each passing day, while music is becoming more disseminated and more listened to and more enjoyed than ever before, it's becoming less monetarily valuable. That's the word I need to use monetarily. They're buying up old people's catalogs. They're not investing in new artists. It's like, okay, Bob Dylan. And even then, it's not a humongous deal. They know they're not going to make a ton of that back. It's 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 not a great deal. We're... Music is just losing its monetary value. This, for the first time in a week since I read the Boohoo article, uh, I felt excited about the future because this can kind of, by decentralizing it, tracking it, this brings it back. Yeah. So thank you for that. I actually have, I I didn't think of the use case that you brought up where if you have a piece and uh, you have a bunch of samples from different sources, uh, how to compensate the people who created mm-hmm. those samples. That's actually a really interesting use case for blockchain. Because yes, blockchain is run by smart contract code that executes on nodes all mm-hmm. around the world. So you would have to build in some intelligence layer in order to recognize that sample uh, and to say like, oh, this sample lasts for three seconds out of the one minute. So this is how much um, this sample is worth in the context of the song. Mm. So at first I was thinking the intelligence layer for that would be kind of difficult to build uh, just because, you know, once you have a track, you have all of these like reverbs and um, sound sources and like sound effects, EQ that can make it more difficult um, to pinpoint like what that sample is and to cross-reference it across a database of samples that exist. So that was like what I was thinking, but then uh, I was thinking more where yeah. the entities behind the nodes are actually real people. Mm. So there, there's platforms where, I mean, there's um, blockchain networks where, you know, you kind of have these built in uh, courts, let's say courts, where uh, mm. the people who are behind the nodes, they can actually vote yes, no, or pass. So this would be a perfect use case for that where... We, if you had a platform where uh, you built out this system where it's like, hey, uh, we have this song. This is our database of samples that people have submitted. And, and you know, you capture all of the characteristics mm-hmm. of that sample, like the ratio between like the amplitude and the decay or whatever. And you have all of this info mm-hmm. that you can kind of apply to a track. And if something matches like above... 80% or something, then maybe you pull that out uh, and present that to the people who run the nodes and for them to decide whether this sample was actually in the track. And if they vote yes, 
uh, maybe they get, I don't know, 5% back of Mm -hmm. the fee. Because of course they need an incentive to participate in this, right? So blockchain allows for all of this stuff and it's powerful because if you're in that kind of situation with a centralized entity, it might not always reflect the truth. Like what if the person Mm -hmm. behind that centralized entity is like friends with the person who wrote the track? Then they suddenly have an incentive to vote no because they want their friend to get all the money. So by decentralizing, you know, the parties that are making the choice, you know, in many cases, Mm. these parties don't know anything about the other people on the network. You know, it's very hard to collude. It's very hard to, you know, try to get into contact with these people (laughs) because all you see, their their identity is just like a long string of numbers. You don't know who they are. I can't even remember. Right? Yeah, like what the pair... The paradox is like, like the bigger the conspiracy, like the way less likely just because of the sheer numbers. There's some term for that, but that whenever it's like, oh, this giant election photo, this big thing, it just never turns out. And it's because of the size of it. Brian, we can do this forever. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah. This was incredible. Thank you. This is incredible. Like, seriously, um, I want people, I want Faking Fan to be able to get in contact with you. Yeah. How would you like people to reach out to you? Do you have an email that you want people to reach out to? Your your website? Plug what you want to plug. <laughs> A smart contract? Yeah, where's your coins? Like, yeah, where's sure. your token? <laughs> my What's your my token? smart contract. Here's my Bitcoin address. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my L-I. tokens. Um, my website is brianlee.com L-I, yes. Yes. And Super my simple. email address Super is simple. brian at brianlee.com. Quite simple. Brian, we got to yeah. we gotta get you back, man, because I, I want to talk uh, use case and possible business application because like this, this could be a billion dollar business. You could literally, like what Trevor said, this could topple BMI and ASCAP. Let's do it. This is our spark. You got to be pumped up about this licensing thing now bro we, we got let's talk <laughs> maybe we might have to i just made it up on the spot i have never thought this about is our it smart contract well, this is why we're friends man <laughs> I, I, we we bounce ideas off each other and that's the beauty of the our listeners are decentralizing this this conversation so like <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll be able to we'll be able to check this like we're all in on it all of our listeners are just you know a bunch of zeros and ones to us too so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly no just can't be like we know where you live. Anyway, thanks for coming, man. Yeah. We really appreciate you. Thanks for having you. me. I uh, hope we can talk more in the future. 